Good afternoon. I would like to begin by thanking several people who have helped bring in our guest speaker today, Peter Sparling. He is here at Penn State as a short-term distinguished visiting professor in the arts and humanities through a collaboration between the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, the School of Theater, and the Weiss Seminar. I would like to thank Alicia Clark Halpin for overseeing Peter's exciting work with the dance students at Penn State, as well as Marika Tacconi, Dan Carter, and my colleagues in the Weiss Seminar. Special thanks to the people who have been helping us with technology, especially to Phil Torbert, who just became a father on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Phil, and thank you for being here on very little sleep. <laughs> Peter Sparling is Thurnau Professor of Dance at the University of Michigan. He is also Artistic Director of the Ann Arbor-based Peter Sparling Dance Company. A graduate of Interlochen Arts Academy, like our esteemed director, Marta Coney, and of Juilliard, he has been a member of the Jose Limon Dance Company and then for 14 years, a principal dancer with the Martha Graham Company. And he is also a regisseur of the Martha Graham Trust, which means that he can set Martha Graham dances on groups of dancers, which he has done all over the world. I could recite a long and impressive list of Peter's many residencies, grants, and honors. But as I was listening to the very stimulating workshop he offered here yesterday afternoon, I thought of something I had read recently about Jean-Paul Sartre that I'd like to share with you. It had to do with Sartre's early encounter with phenomenology and his excitement at the realization that a phenomenologist could talk about everyday objects and make philosophy out of them. Peter Sparling can take everyday objects and make dance out of them. He improvised a dance around the columns just down the hall here at Borland while we were waiting for the workshop to begin yesterday. Uh, during his visit to State College this past fall, Peter handed my husband a DVD as he said goodbye. It contained solo dances he had improvised around Christopher's paintings and then danced and filmed in his hotel room. As an artist, Peter not only can make dance out of anything, he also draws inspiration from a rich array of works. Through collaborations with visual artists, scientists, and composers, he has consistently pushed his own work to new heights of creativity and to new depths of feeling. His lecture today will draw on the 20th century history of collaboration and interdisciplinarity in dance. Those of us who attended his workshop yesterday saw works drawing on Francis Bacon, Paul Cezanne, Ervo Pert, Johann Sebastian Bach, Elliot Carter, automobile assembly plants in Detroit, the AIDS pandemic, the shameful recent history of the Guantanamo prison, memories of his father, and much, much more. Trained as a classical violinist, Peter is also a poet. Recent works, including Climbing Saint Victoire, his danced homage to Cezanne, which will appear on Michigan Public Television later this spring, have been conceived as dances for screen as well as stage. We are thrilled and deeply honored to welcome him today, Peter Sparling. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. <clears throat> well, it's wonderful to be here. And pardon my rather nasal sound. I've got one of those nasty late winter sinus conditions. And I was telling Nancy, if she sees me ascending up through the ceiling, someone just, Phil, grab my heels and pull me down to earth again. 
Well, I can't, there's no way I can upstage a new father. I mean, really, but here I am anyways. I, I've given birth. Actually, one critic said that if Martha Graham were to bear a child, she would give birth to a cube. And that, you know, such, such is cubism in dance. But um, I don't know where that came from anyways. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I prefaced yesterday's uh, workshop with something that came to me just before I began, and it, it's that, um, uh, you know, we, we creative folk who present things to a public, uh, usually, I mean, we assume that the process, that all the nitty-gritty and the backstage dirt stays um, uh, disguised and apart from the public eye. I mean, th this whole, everything I'm going to be talking about today is really after the fact. It's in retrospect, in that, in that those of us who create works for the stage do it for that moment when the audience is there, the curtain opens, and this uh, experience begins, this simulation of some hyperkinetic glory of, of the human condition. Um, so uh, I find it interesting as I approach middle age and my, my uh, dancing life uh, kind of fades in, well, into digital world, um, that um, I, I'm talking more and more about what it is I do and what we do, and I'm gaining much more respect for the scholars and the historians and the theorists. I, I used to somewhat, I, I used to look somewhat askance and, you know, I, I doubted whether those critics, damn them, really knew what, what it was we were doing. And um, it was always us against them. Unless you got a really good rave review in the in the morning New York Times, and it, it, you felt like you know you'd made it, but um, so anyways, my frame of reference as a performer um, was very different 40 years ago than it is today, and it'll continue to change. Uh, what we're looking at today is a 100-year span of development and of retrospective, hopefully, insights about how Diaghilev's legacies um, have in a sense, um, spanned towards what we now consider interdisciplinarity and how it has become institutionalized to a large degree in higher education. Um, not that 40 years ago when I made my first stance, I ever thought that I would end up at a university and that I would actually be supported making dances and teaming up with collaborators from every possible discipline. So bear with me as I read through my script. At a certain point, I'll ask Phil to help me. I've got some PowerPoint imagery. And then I've got a video uh, that I'll, I'll also play. So um, let me begin. Dance is the last of the arts to gain respect in academia and a solid foothold in American culture. Ephemeral of the moment and written out of much of art and cultural theory due to the relative paucity of documentation or serious scholarly attention before the last century's explosion of interest and creative growth in the field. Dance is often still the exotic or uninvited guest, evoking curiosity and accused of getting in the door by sheer force of presence, erotic charge, or novelty. For those of us who straddle the worlds of dance and academia, these subversive excursions can sometimes be flattering or an exercise in vanity like making an entrance onto stage for a command performance, i.e. campus committee meeting. But more often than not, they account for years of earnest effort to prove ourselves to our colleagues, 
to legitimize dance as the most lively and telling embodiment of its time and place. Our claim is that, literally, dances and dancers are the body of evidence, a living text to be read for clues and answers to riddles of human behavior and of how we actualize and map complex systems of culture, thought, and action onto the space of the stage or the dance floor. Proof of this lies in the phenomenon I'd like to explore with you today, how dance has periodically reared its hyperkinetic head to become the conduit, the lightning rod, the catalyst for innovative collaborations in the arts, as well as popular culture. Indeed, to witness the phenomenal success of So You Think You Can Dance and Dancing with the Stars, you'd think that the Roman Colosseum had transported itself onto Fox or ABC with all the gory details, bodily traumas, and backstage drama of the competition exposed to a TV-besotted public, a public who are closely watched in turn by the ratings industry and commercial sponsors, making for yet another tier of the feeding frenzy. I might return later to this mass appeal of the lowest common denominator of pop culture, but first, I want to bend our collective focus to the extraordinary era, era that is the subject of this year's theme for your Institute for the Arts and Humanities, and to propose that what occurred in the fashionable and avant-garde Paris during the early decades of the last century kick-started a hundred years of innovation and initiative in dance as high art. A century after the Ballet Russe, my generation of independent choreographers and that of my students assume formulas for collaboration with other artists that were largely founded in Sergei Diaghilev's bold efforts as a ringmaster or agent provocateur of a bevy of artists. His self-appointed task was to match up the most popular composers, writers, and visual artists of his day with his stable of choreographers to contribute to premieres for his exotic ballet company. His vision for a new total theater used ballet and dance as the fluid medium or catalyst for grand theatrical productions featuring equal parts visual arts, music, and choreography. His artists were an invitation-only elite of hired hands, the choreographer only one of a creative team under Diaghilev's ultimate authority. In contrast, today's choreographers assume an extraordinary power as initiators and directors of such collaborative efforts. This, I believe, is largely due to the migration of dance and dancers to New York City after the heyday of the Ballet Russe, embodied in the mid-century efforts of Martha Graham and George Balanchine, who envisioned and created new dance companies and countless new collaborative works. Since then, and with a continuing proliferation of companies, choreographers, funding structures, university programs, and a blurring of disciplinary boundaries and new applications of media and technology, Diaghilev's vision for the post-Belle Epoque Paris has become a shared world vision for 21st century performance. Before I go further, allow me to introduce myself and clarify my vantage point on the subject. My expertise is as a choreographer and practitioner, not as a scholar or historian. I have never taken part in a reconstruction of a ballet russe work. 
I indirectly witnessed the reconstruction of Nijinsky's La Premidi d'un Pond at University of Michigan when Anne Hutchinson Guest came to set it on our students in the early 90s. And at that point, she was using a form of dance notation called labanotation, where she would refer to the vertical staffs of the movement mapped out one measure uh, over the next. And uh, she uh, recreated this vision on our dancers. Our, our uh, costume shop recreated the costumes, our set painters recreated the original backdrop, and we were able to, in a sense, reproduce that historical moment on the stage of the Power Center in Ann Arbor. Um, I received a BFA in dance from Juilliard in 73 and have danced and choreographed professionally since then, while assuming in 1984 a tenure-track position at a major research university in the Midwest, where I later earned a named professorship. I have never pursued a terminal degree, although our dance department at U of M is now considering the addition of an MA and a PhD track to our curriculum. My education has instead been conducted largely in the trenches, what one might call research in action. Over a period of 40 years, I have participated in and initiated countless new collaborative works. As a dancer in the companies of Jose Limon and Martha Graham, I took part in the creation of world premieres and witnessed these great modern dance pioneers mediate with composers, set designers, costume designers, and producers in the immense effort to see their visions come to life. I have created over 130 works of my own, and for many of these, I have commissioned musical scores, texts, worked with painters and sculptors, video artists, actors, brain research statisticians, poets, and writers. I have written texts for performance. I've shot and edited video backdrops for full evening works and made dance works specifically for the screen. My latest projects have consisted of works for television and stage that just happened to involve French painters and composers of the early 20th century. August, choreographed in 2007 for my own company in Ann Arbor and set to Eric Satie's Trois Gémeaux will be performed by the Penn State dancers Thursday evening. Climbing Saint-Victoire, a danced homage to Paul Cézanne for television, will be broadcast on Michigan Public Television April 4th, 8 p.m. <laughs> I just sent the postcards out this past weekend. See, you've got to be your own PR person as well. That's interdisciplinarity. Um, a recently completed solo video work to Stravinsky's uh, Rite of Spring will serve as a script or prototype for a large-scale production for four dancers, three video screens, and full symphony orchestra in 2012. And that'll be at, at Ann Arbor's Hill Auditorium. And don't ask me how it's all going to work, but somehow we'll have the full Ann Arbor Symphony. I'll have a downstage spot with a woman who begins rocking in an armchair in, in, with white hair. There are going to be two auxiliary stages to the side where her kind of doppelgangers or mirrored images create movement and counterpoint to her. And then against the pipe organ pipes, I'm going to have three screens stationed with imagery above the orchestra. The dilemma will be convincing the conductor that he needs to follow my timing. So this is, we have yet to discuss this. And again, th that's kind of for another lecture, is what really happens with collaborations. 
the, 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 the underside of interdisciplinarity. Um, so many of these collaborations were created under my own not-for-profit dance company with a combination of public, private, and university funds. And, and this is how the picture is radically altered from 100 years ago. Uh, beginning in 1979 with my first company, New York. For these works, I followed the formula of my mentors and gathered together the dancers, artists, and funding to mount short performance seasons for my company and to tour. Other creative efforts were conducted exclusively under the auspices of a major research university or commissioned by a performing arts presenter. When the opportunity presented itself for me to leave New York City after 15 years as a performer and choreographer there, I gratefully embraced a tenured professorship at a university and its extraordinary resources. These resources included in-kind space to rehearse and create new works, performance opportunities, dancers, funding for creative endeavors that was considered equivalent to scholarly or scientific research, and job security, insurance, and a pension plan. Amen. <laughs> but what perhaps excited me the most was the opportunity to freely and shamelessly roam the university in search of collaborators. I immediately teamed up with architects and composers, poets and painters, uh, beginning a 24-year sweep of stimulating partnerships with colleagues across the campus, as well as from the local community. In 1994, I assumed the artistic directorship of a, of a flailing local dance company and began a 15-year effort to build a company of seven dancers, a repertory of my own works, a board of directors, and a funding stream, a studio, a studio of 250 students, and an audience for modern dance locally and throughout the state of Michigan. One work for my company's 1996 season involved a cellist and six dancers on stage against five huge painted panels by Christopher Campbell, my host Nancy Locke's talented husband. I was directing my own interdisciplinary circus with one foot in the not-for-profit world and the other in the university. The point is, I was only doing what I'd been taught to do, what I'd watched my mentors accomplish what I assumed was part of the job of being a modern dancer in the modern world. As I see it, Diaghilev's dreams became institutionalized in American higher ed when large funding streams were mandated during the 1990s for the pursuit of the I word, interdisciplinarity. Faculty artists, performers, and university uh, performing arts presenters jumped on the bandwagon as the natural inheritors of this mandate. They had already been doing it for decades, and funding was suddenly available for commissions, residencies, and innovative projects. Humanities institutes blossomed at colleges and universities across the country, providing fellowships for their faculty and guests to explore diverse projects alone or together, and to intermingle on a daily or weekly basis. At my home institution, it was not the mandate from above or, or any funding stream alone that created the market for innovative collaborations. A handful of entrepreneurial faculty members had been conducting our own subversive activity for years, working in teams and applying for funds through our own stubborn initiative long before it was housed in institutes or became, became the mandate of Lee Bollinger, 
who was our arts-friendly president from 1996 to 2002. Lee fancied himself as a diagolith of sorts and saw the university as a Renaissance city-state or medieval stronghold whose mission was to preserve culture in the arts, to house and to protect the artist. For YOHA, or Year of Humanities in the Arts, in 1997, we were generating teams of fellow professors at U of M under the banner and funding stream labeled interdisciplinarity, applying for and serving on summer ID interdisciplinary workshops and attempting to agree upon what indeed was meant by interdisciplinary uh, versus multi or cross-disciplinary. Seven Enigmas had its premiere that year, a sprawling meditation on humanity's place within its inner and outer landscapes, involving Fred Bookstein's computer-generated grids of brain maps activated by my dancing body, among images from the Hubble Space Telescope and sets by arts faculty Jim Cogswell, and a new electronic score by Daniel Bernard Romain. Six years later, Lee and his artist wife Jean left for Columbia University to reside in the midst of the ultimate city-state of arts and culture, Manhattan. But Lee left behind a vital legacy that now attracts younger faculty members in the form of joint appointments between diverse departments and schools and competitions and grants for interdisciplinary course development, teaching, or creative projects. In my enthusiasm to make my point and construct our century-long bridge, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I would like to steer us back to a more formative point on our century-long timeline, bridging 1909 to 2009. This point comes long before my first choreographic collaborations in 1969, or my stints as member of both Limon and Graham companies. During the amazing and well-funded 70s and 80s, I had the privilege of performing some of the great collaborations of 20th century dance, among those Martha Graham's Appalachian Spring and Clytemnestra, or Jose Limon's There is a Time, or The Emperor Jones, as well as newer and final works by both greats. I remember actually dancing for Aaron Copeland's 80th birthday with Aaron conducting, I think this was in California, I was doing the part of the revivalist or the preacher on stage, and I just remember looking down in the pit at his bald forehead and his nose and thinking, how am I going to tell him that this is too fast or too slow? I mean, th this is his music. Who am I to tell Aaron Copeland that I need this faster? But it was, it was a real honor. And uh, also being in Martha's studio and having Isamu Noguchi walk in and sit and watch a rehearsal where we were manhandling his props and sprawling across his beds and things. It was just quite an extraordinary experience. Um, the point I'm looking for along our timeline occurs 40 years or so before then, before my time. And this is at the shift of the world's dance mecca from Paris to America, when dance as an art form had gathered the momentum, support, and talent to become the magnet for great collaborative works under the banner of emerging choreographic greats in America. To give our grand jeté over the 20th century a bit more contextual ballast, we need to look back even further. And I, I, I hesitated to go back uh, and, and regress, but I thought we, we should really remind ourselves that interdisciplinary was go 
was happening long before it was called that. Um, before there was such a thing as interdisciplinarity and long before the Ballet Russe, there was dance as ritual, re religious ceremony, court spectacle. These staged events, whether outdoors on raised platforms, around a fire, or arranged on sprawling palace grounds, or under the beams of a ceremonial lodge, or in an ornate opera house, characterized the human tendency to mark special occasions, the changes of the season, the rhythms of nature, of communal work and play, and of rites of passage. To achieve these heightened moments and thus stabilize or bind together its participants in a mutual contract of consciousness and conformity, humans pulled out all the stops in employing every possible means of amplifying reality and engaging the senses. Densely or delicately textured music, the sound of chanting voices, the propulsive beat heightened the sense of hearing. Detailed costumes, ornamenting and drawing focus to different parts of the human body, heightened the sense of touch and sight. Danced movement, whether serpentine or, and seductive or raw and percussive, touched upon the kinesthetic empathy or sympathetic nervous systems in harmony with the object of desire, whether as performer or witness. Sets, props, decor, evoked alternate states or diverse terrains, fantastic realms or sites of religious catharsis, whether fraught with symbolism or mere flirtatious confections. Community members shared the roles of what we now might identify as choreographer, set or scenic designer, wig master, composer, musician, actor, dancer, script writer, director, producer, rehearsal director, maestro, empresario. Think of children staging a play in a neighbor's basement or garage, camp skits, storytelling around a fire. As cultures evolved and established realms of power and influence, habits of belief, and the corresponding set of symbols, sacred or secular, that became their identifying archetypes, their productions became more sophisticated and accumulated their own histories, traditions, and hierarchies. Tasks became specialized, and in many cases, a separate cast of professional artists, artisans, and entertainers took on the responsibilities and roles of producing secular and religious spectacles. This is true in most all areas of the world. But it is in the Eurocentric Western traditions of music, dance, and theater that we see an intense and relatively rapid accumulation and flourishing of mega productions on the scale of Louis XIV's Versailles and culminating in Busby Berkeley's movie extravaganzas or Las Vegas's Cirque du Soleil, the Metropolitan Opera's recent inter interactive production of Robert Lepage's The Damnation of Faust, or Madonna's latest world tour. Of course, the whole world is now in on it. Witness Beijing's opening ceremonies for the 2008 Summer Olympics. All right, so let's locate ourselves in Paris, 1909, to begin our dance through the decades. And Phil, this is where I need my PowerPoint. And I think what we'll see first on the screen is that looming image of Diaghilev himself. And if we can just hold it there, then all I have to do is press this little magic button. Fabulous. All right, you'd think. From 1909 to 19, and I, you folks have, have already been uh, primed in, in the information about Diaghilev from your previous speakers here, so I really don't need to say too much, but I'll just kind of use this as the beginning of my timeline. 
Um, Diaghilev rules the Ballet Russe from uh, 1909 to 1929, largely imported from St. Petersburg and borrowing from the tradition of the Tsar's imperial ballet. He commissions choreographers, composers, and scenic artists to create fantastic works, using the dancers as the animating force and star power to bring it all to life. As the non-artist administrator, he selects and assigns members of a creative production team drawn from the already highly interactive art scene in Paris. Among the composers, Debussy, Miot, Poulenc, Prokofiev, Ravel, Satie, Defaya, Strauss, Stravinsky. Of the visual artists, Picasso, Basque, Benoit, Brock, Chanel, Matisse, Derain, Vichirico, Dali, Utrio. Um, of the writers, Cocteau, he teams them up with choreographers Balanchine, Fokine, Lifar, Massine, Mijinsky, Mijinska, Pavlova, and Ida Rubinstein. Perhaps the most momentous occasion marking the beginnings of modernism in all the arts and a new tradition of in independent artist collaborators was the premiere of Le Sacre de Printemps, or the Rite of Spring, on May 29, 1913, at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées in Paris, creating a furor and scandalous riot. Here we have um, a set of images. Um, we've got, oh, I love this cross-fading. This is great. Um, here you have Cocteau and Diaghilev, Stravinsky. You have the various teams here. Again, just a smattering I bootlegged off Google. So no one sue me, please, for using these images. You just see the, these illustrious colleagues. I love the picture of Majinska, Majinsky's sister, working with Cocteau's scenario for Le Train Bleu. Um, here we have, let's see, great images of W.C. Stravinsky. The extraordinary impact that Majinsky had on the dance world, his power, his um, uh, animal-like qualities. And, I, and I, I had the opportunity to work very closely with Rudolf Nureyev and was his coach when he danced with Martha Graham. And I think I have a sense of what that must have been like, just watching Rudolf dance. Um, and, and again, you see how bodies have become uh, forever associated with musical scores. Petrushka, of course, the Firebird. Um, here you have some images of the costuming that the artists, um, in collaboration with the choreographer and Diaghilev, created fantastic scenery and costuming. And, of course, Rite of Spring, where uh, and I talked about this in my talk yesterday about how uh, our, our legacy of dances becomes vague and broken when we don't have film or video as evidence or notation. And this is an example of a very heroic effort to reconstruct this early dance. George Balanchine is, of course, our most direct legacy and link. During 1926 to 29, he was the last wunderkind of the Ballet Russe. He created Mercure with Satie, Pas d'Acier and the Prodigal Son with Prokofiev, and, and Apollo to an, a new score by Igor Stravinsky. 
This particular collaboration, dictated largely through Diaghilev's efforts, began a history of dynamic fusion between music and movement, embodying a new tradition of formalist modernism. As Balanchine is often quoted, one sees the music and hears the dance. Brought to America by Lincoln Kirstein in 1933 and nurtured under Kirstein's watchful eye and constant support, Balanchine eventually created with Kirstein the New York City Ballet. Kirstein championed Balanchine's work almost like an American Diaghilev, but yielded ultimate power to the choreographer's tastes. He also often had to yield to Balanchine's perennial use of a more conventional narrative mode in his ballet, reserving his own preference for the non-narrative abstract ballets. Many of those staged in rehearsal black and white leotards and tights and stripped of all artifice to reveal the, the bare flesh and bones of the ballet vocabulary. So here you have images of Balanchine, Stravinsky. I remember this studio very well. I used to take ballet class in this studio on 83rd and Broadway near Zabar's, which is it was taken over by a Barnes and Noble, I think is up there now. But they were the most beautiful studios, the most glorious floors. I remember the whoop-de-doo that happened when they were, they, we, were, we had to shut down the studio, and I was interviewed about these floors, and I compared them to the fingerboard of a violin, of a Stradivarius violin. Of course, it didn't work. They, and here you have Noguchi designing for Orpheus, and we'll soon see more of Noguchi with Graham's uh, collaborations. Meanwhile, in another part of the hothouse of Manhattan, circa 1930s, 40s, a brooding firecracker of a modern dancer, originally from Dennis Shawn's California-based company, gathers together a cult of barefoot female dancers to create stark, radical dances on small stages. She sculpts the human body in new ways, always originating the impulse to move from the pelvis, the deep core, the ancestral or blood memory of the body, and evolves a new modern dance technique, a school, and generations of disciples. Under composer-musician Louis Horst's firm direction, she begins a 60-year legacy of collaboration that leads to commissions of musical scores from such composers as Aaron Copland, William Schumann, Samuel Barber, Giancarlo Minotti, Paul Hindemith, and Carlos Chavez. Artists Alexander Calder, Arch Lauderer, and most of all, Isamu Noguchi. Later, working with Marisol, Danny Caravan. Uh, lighting designer, Gene Rose Rosenthal. With Martha, Gene Rosenthal pretty much invented dance lighting, giving the human body a three-dimensionality on the stage that was really never before seen. Uh, again, and this was largely because of Graham's efforts to highlight the human body without the trappings of a lot of fabric, costume, point, shoe, et cetera. It was the human body that was a sculptural element and primary source on stage. Martha also um, uh, worked with fashion designers, uh, particularly Halston. And it was very much during my era where we'd go to uh, Halston's atelier to be fitted for costumes and you'd see uh, wall upon wall of the little drawings for his latest collection. And I actually had the opportunity with Janet Elber, who's now the director, to dance for Halston's fashion shows, where Janet and I would choreograph lead-ins to each collection. Like we'd come out in like summer leisure wear, 
and do like a, a funny little dance up and down the runway, and then the models would come out with their cheeks all pulled in. And, 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 then, and then we'd do, um, oh, uh, the evening wear, and we'd do an Astaire Rogers number. And I remember finishing one in Acapulco. It was the kind of the nightlife kind of go out to Studio 54 and boogie kind of thing. And we had silver mylar jumpsuits, and we were doing slow motion kind of out of outer space weightless movement up and down the runway. Uh, I don't know if you'd call that high art, but again, an example of how it all got messed in, in intermingled. Uh, the, the high art, the low art, Halston, who adored Martha, and who found it fascinating the way Martha had constructed costumes and built them on her dancers using stretch wool jersey, and then later, of course, when lycra and spandex came on the scene, that, that created a, a whole new, new uh, world. She attracted her own funding sources, from Gertrude Macy to Betsy de Rothschild, Halston, Doris Duke, and Alice Tully. It is my belief that Graham, even more than Balanchine, was the pivotal point in the establishment of the role of fiercely independent choreographer as primary force in bringing together artistic talents. Um, again, uh, here's Martha in her early days with Dennis Sean, very exotic works drawn from various Asian dances, from Greek friezes. Um, here you have Martha breaking away from Dennis Sean, breaking away from vaudeville to evolve her own aesthetic, her own. You see Martha in the famous solo Lamentation, uh, where she pulls a tube of stretched jersey across her body to create this moving sculpture um, uh, where she embodies uh, mourning. She doesn't illustrate it, but the body becomes this, an, in a sense, an abstraction. Uh, to the far right above, you see her in Frontier, where she, her first collaboration with Noguchi, where she has a simple fence post at the back and then ropes that go from the back and all the way up to the downstage corners of the, of the stage, creating this sense of endless perspective. Um, very arch architectural. In the lower corner left, you see uh, Martha in El Penitente with the first two men in her company, Merce Cunningham, who's holding the sail, and Eric Hawkins as the penitent on his knees. And then to a, a famous photograph by Barbara Morgan uh, to the lower right is from Letter to the World, uh, a wonderful work made in the 40s, I think, 1940, where Martha uses texts from Emily Dickinson. And again, goes back to her kind of Puritan New England roots, a, a, a lovely dance to a commission score and a commission set. Uh, more examples of Martha's works uh, uh, in her trajectory. Appalachian Spring in the upper left with the, the set by Isamu Noguchi, performed first at the Library of Congress, where now you're getting the government involved in interdisciplinary work, where you have um, uh, Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge funding uh, choreographic commissions, and they're being acknowledged in Washington and performed at the uh, Library of Congress. Uh, then not too long afterwards, Martha being sent as cultural ambassador all over the world by the State Department post-World War II to generate a sense of the values of America all over the world. And there are scholars who have written extensively about these tours by various dance companies representing the United States government. 
and what that meant at the time in its cultural context. Was it propaganda? Was it high art parading as propaganda or propaganda parading as high art, etc.? Um, in the uh, middle, yes, Martha doing Appalachian Spring as the young bride, she danced that part into her 60s. She was tenacious. And then to the upper right corner, you see her against a, a piece by Isamu Noguchi in a work uh, called Herodiad, where this fractured skeleton of a sculpture, she always used to call her mirror. And she would approach it and look at this Noguchi sculpture, and you could see a kind of an X-ray abstraction of what she saw in the interior. Um, er Eric Hawkins in the lower left in Appalachian Spring, and then uh, a grand dancer in Errand into the Maze, where Noguchi created this, looks kind of like a wishbone or pelvic bone, which becomes the gate. And here Martha transforms the um, Minotaur myth uh, and uh, gives it a female protagonist of Ariadne, perhaps, weaving her way through the maze, uh, battling against fear, embodied by a, a man with a yoke and a bone-like headpiece that Noguchi created. Um, other collaborators, we see, of course, Aaron Copeland, Noguchi, William Schumann in the upper center, who, William Schumann who started uh, the dance department at Juilliard in 1951 which then, with Graham, Limon, Doris Humphrey, became the model for BFA programs in dance all over the country. So again, you're already beginning to see the institutionalization of this collaborative effort with dance at its center. William Schumann in the lower left, uh, you have Manati, lower center, and then I love the picture of, there's Martha with Liza Minnelli, Andy Warhol, and Halston. sets you have in the upper left the amazing kind of skeleton of a homestead. In the upper center you have Martha inside Noguchi's um, wire flaming uh, yoke that Martha actually gets up into and lifts onto her body as she walks across the stage. Uh, in Night Journey, the, the bed, the fateful bed, Oedipus, the story of Oedipus and Jocasta. Uh, Herodiad, again the Noguchi set with these bone-like structures. Seraphic dialogue in the middle, I wish I had a better image of this. It's a gorgeous set made out of copper tubing, tubing that indicates the designs of a, of a Gothic cathedral and a um, stained glass window. Again, Erringe into the maze, and then lower center embattled garden. It's the Adam and Eve and the Serpent and Lilith quartet that was created the same year as Clytemnestra. And it, it was always magical to dance on Noguchi sets because it reminded you of, of how to dance. You had to dance from the bones out. You had to give your bones to the audience as uh, this um, very much like Giacometti. Uh, uh, this, uh, you, you, you had to be through the refiner's fire to be able to present just the right configuration of the human form to create the image that related to the emotion, that re related to that point in the narrative. Um, I had the opportunity this past summer to reconstruct Clytemnestra from three different videos. Um, 
an extraordinary piece in 58, which, which some believe is kind of Martha's culmination of her Greek period and uh, her only full evening work with sets by Noguchi. A score by an Egyptian composer, Helim Aldab, who's now at Ohio University. And I learned, uh, I danced the role of Orestes in, this produ in the production in the 70s and learned my parts from the original cast members. So again, just a reminder that dance is often passed down from one dancer to the next. And the next best thing, of course, is video, but the very best way to do it is to actually have someone coach you who has done the role. That's another lecture. Um, so um, moving on to um, those who Martha spawned, <laughs> the careers of uh, Eric Hawkins, who was at, for a short while her husband and who was her partner who was with the company and who assisted her incredibly in running the company. Uh, that's in the upper left, Eric. Merce Cunningham. I was just at the Cunningham studio a few weeks ago. I took two dancers to learn a work that Merce created in 1942 called Totem Ancestor, the first solo that he created to a score by John Cage. And this was one of John Cage's first works for prepared piano. And uh, Merce actually coached the two fellows on it. And I was like a little kid with his idol. Of course, he's now almost 90, very frail in a wheelchair. But he was still able to zero in on details that the men were dancing and to give them very clear feedback. Invaluable. I reminded these young fellows that they don't know how lucky they are. They will, they will tell this to their grandchildren. Um, you have um, Paul Taylor, whose company is performing in Manhattan as we speak, 50th anniversary. Um, you have Twyla Tharp with her leg up in the air, uh, who danced briefly with Paul. There's a great story from Dan Wagoner that when Twyla was in Paul's company, she was a real feisty, um, real <laughs> tough gal and a lot of attitude. But he remembers Twyla standing in the wing, ready to go on, just waiting casually for her, her part to go on. And Dan's in the audience watching it, and he, he has to come backstage and say, Twyla, if you can see the audience from the wing, they can see you. Back up. <laughs> That's a great story, Twyla. Uh, so you have, uh, and then in the lower corner, of course, you have John Cage and Merce, um, that uh, really extraordinary collaboration. Um, of course, the variations in aesthetic, stylistic, and philosophical preferences and temperaments embodied in such collaborations are the story of modern dance. Uh, Martha Graham um, was always the dramatic vortex, um, and everything served her drama. The sets and the music were like psychological frames or sonic landscapes, rarely the structural base or compositional frame or source. Um, everything worked as kind of the Greek chorus, foreshadowing, commenting upon, or be becoming another facet of that main character that was Martha. With Merce, um, it, was, it was a radically different orientation where there was this sense of Zen simultaneity, where you have the music creating its universe independent of the choreography. You have phrases of choreography decided upon just before the dancers go on by a toss of a coin or a roll of a dice, where it is 
created by chance methods, the I Ching, um, breaking up this idea of the choreographer as, as control freak, <laughs> if you will. Um, you have Alwyn Nikolai, who took on interdisciplinarity and made it his own thing. He created the sets, the electronic music, the movement, and costumed his dancers into these extraordinary amoebic abstract shapes. Um, you have Paul Taylor, who worked early on with Rauschenberg, with John Rawlings, Jennifer Tipton, a famous lighting designer, Alex Katz, Jasper Johns, John Cage, Ellsworth Kelly. Um, what's funny is that he, he would often have in his program that the costumes were designed by George Tassett, and it was his pseudonym. It's when he designed the costumes. Uh, you have then the Judson Church, the postmoderns in the 60s and 70s who re radically rebelled against abstraction or movement that was anything but pedestrian. Um, and you have um, Yvonne Rayner's manifesto that says no to anything that strikes of artifice or drama. Um, and, uh, you have the postmodern formalists, Twyla Tharp, who moves from one of these postmodernists to enter into a realm of high commercial theater. Uh, she collaborates with Philip Glass, with Billy Joel. Uh, I think she's just doing something new to music of Bob Dylan. Um, William Forsythe, an American composer or choreographer who went to Germany and created a, 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 new, a new take, a deconstructed take on ballet. Bill T. Jones and his collaborators. Ohad Naharin, who I went to Juilliard with, who was briefly with the Graham Company and then went to Israel to assume the directorship of the Basheva Company and has evolved his own technique called Gaga, which is, a, again, a radical deconstruction of movement where anything can happen at any time at full force, full energy. You also have the movement theater of Robert Wilson, who collaborated early with Lucinda Childs for Einstein on the Beach and Philip Glass. Julie Taymor, of course, we know her as the Lion King lady. But she also has done films and opera and plays, et cetera. Uh, Simon McBurney, I think, is really someone to watch. He has a theater group called Complicité. And they do extraordinary works for the theater that integrate seamlessly video montages and backdrops. Beautiful work, Complicité. And then you have Mark Morris, who, in a sense, began his career deconstructing his dance sources along the line of Roland Barthes and striptease, but he gradually became much more of a traditionalist with a brilliant but sometimes irritating adherence to his musical scores. He championed his ballet, uh, in, he, he always championed using live music with his company, and that's something we all admire and envy of him. And in a sense, he brings us through modern dance full circle back to Balanchine in an interesting way. But not all of this remained in New York. The decentralization of dance to other world capitals and campuses had begun and persisted in parallel with the touring schedules of these great New York-based companies. The university has been a major player in this decentralization for decades. I'm just going to shut this off. Yeah. Um, Graham first visited U of M in the early 30s, Cunningham in the 60s. In turn, university trained dancers became stars of those companies, and their company members became faculty at those universities. Your own Alicia Clark Halpin is part of this network, having performed under B.B. Miller, an inheritor of the postmodern tradition, 
who is now a professor at Ohio State and experimenting in the interdisciplinary fusion of video and dance. As a profoundly important site for training, scholarly research, and sponsorship of residencies, festivals, and commissions and tours of professional companies and artists since the 30s, the university has been part of a network of support and of supply and demand, populating our country with dancers and choreographers and supplying companies, urban, suburban, and rural communities, colleges and universities with trained dancers and choreographers, arts educators, and community arts advocates. Over the past 30 years, faculty artists have made a case for creative endeavor as being the equivalent to scientific or academic research. They are major players in initiating and sustaining interdisciplinary endeavors within the university community. So from Paris to New York to Ann Arbor to Columbus to State College and back again, we can track an infinite number of genealogies, tracing the paths and origins from Diaghilev's almost czarist control of his artistic teams to contemporary choreographers doubling as tenure-track professors and directing or participating in collaborations with colleagues. Of course, all sorts of questions arise. Can one artist creating or combining many media be interdisciplinary? Or does it take a village? Does it take more than one artist? Who's on first? Can there be a true democracy of collective decision-making when dancers decision-mating that was a slip of the tongue. Decision-making, when dancers are center stage, or is the choreographer the ringmaster because of his or her ultimate understanding of the physics of performance? I think the answers are all over the map and differ with each team and each project. Like their own complex systems, modern-day interdisciplinary projects evolve out of and create their own distinct cultures, politics, and products. Uh, to finish up, I'd like to turn to uh, the use of video samples, something I've, that I've restrained myself from doing until now, to resist the temptation to let the novelty and sheer kinetic power of the dance distract you from my profound utterances. First, I'd like to map but one stream of this century-long progress through a series of works created to the music of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. British dance scholar Stephanie Jordan in a recent email, I begged her to give me the facts and figures, and she very willingly did. She has identified at least 185 different versions to the full score, and 19 versions to the two-piano transcription. I'll screen brief excerpts from and compare five of these. The Joffrey revival of the original Nijinsky production that you are familiar of with, that Millicent Pogson described to you during her recent visit. We'll look at Pina Bausch's 1975 version, Martha Graham's version, uh, 19, uh, actually Paul Taylor comes next, 80, Martha Graham in 84, and ending with my own recent attempt for the video screen. Uh, I'll, I'll then end the presentation with a sneak look at Climbing Saint-Victoire, an intermediate travelogue of sorts through the mind and work of Cezanne, created largely at the U of M's Digital Media Commons and the culmination of 24 years of my own interdisciplinary work at my home campus. Um, so, all right, I'm gonna, let's pop this baby on and see what we have. If we can modify the sound. Um, okay, this is again all illegal, but I did get permission for the Taylor and Graham works. Um, it's funny because you can download, you can look at all this on, 
um, uh, YouTube. So I always wonder, like, what's legit? It's a brave new world out there. All right, if we could just get this going, and I'll, uh, Phil, let me tell you whether or not this sounds too high. Um, we have five rites of spring popping up here. And I wanted to do this so you could kind of use your vision to scan across the different eras, the different interpretations. I'll just let this ride for a while. And then we will move into one at a time and I'll talk to you about each of them. I tried to line up the scores, so it, don't let it upset you too much. Again, being aware of the different tempi, of the variations, the use of the human body, of group versus individual, of the use of the stage. Each of these productions involves its own team of collaborators, its own interpretation of the score. Here you have the famous reconstruction, the Joffrey reconstruction uh, of the 1913 version, uh, reconstructed in 87. The sets and costumes by Nicholas Rorish, who was an archaeologist and painter, borrowing from his research in um, Russian culture and the sacrificial rituals. Here you have, again, a lot of group movement, very percussive and rhythmic. Interesting to compare 1975, the German choreographer Pina Bausch's, one of her most dancerly pieces, before she broke into more of a dance theater. Very movement oriented, very convulsive, but very much a feminist view of a, a world dominated by, by men, the male, the power of the male. 32 dancers, uh, stage and costume designer Rolf Borzik, who covered the stage with soil. So as the dancers dance and roll across the floor, they accumulate soil and dirt onto their costumes. You see classical modern dance, Limon in particular. You see ballet vocabulary, jetés. But the kind of the raw, authentic uh, processes of the, of the human condition in heightened states takes over as opposed to a display of technique. Here you have Paul Taylor's 1980 version, which he called the rehearsal. Costumes and sets by a long-time uh, collaborator, John Rawlings. Here he has two stories going at once. He has a detective story set in Chinatown and also a day in the life of a dance company rehearsing a new work to the two piano reduction that Stravinsky made for rehearsals of the original right, of production. He has characters, the rehearsal mistress, the girl, the private eye, the crook and his mistress, his stooge, henchmen, policemen, and then bar maidens. Very flat comic book, two-dimensional, kind of film noir meets silent movie meets
Here you have Martha Graham's company performing Martha's version, which she created in 1984, very late in her career. Martha danced the Rite of Spring, the role of the Chosen One, on the stage of Carnegie Hall in the 30s with Stokowski conducting and Massine overseeing the choreography. But she never got back to it until 1984, just uh, seven years before she passed away. Here you have the typical Graham, the groups of dancers creating an architecture on the stage with these contracted positions in the air of the body coiled into its uh, core, the hips, a lot of flexed foot, angular torsos. A set that's, that's, that kind of uh, suggests Georgia O'Keeffe uh, southwest desert landscape that was a profound influence to her. The use of the floor, Graham's use of the floor. Here you have me in my neighborhood. Um, video technology. I, I started by dancing a little dance on every state and then I overlaid one of me fast forward and one of me fast reverse. Here, this mirrors the section that occurs before it, where I return to my backyard through my neighborhood. Could you turn up the music a little bit, Ken? And again, what, what, what can happen now with video technology, and, and again, this is a prototype for a version where I think I'm gonna have a woman doing this role in a rocking chair, where essentially you lay the Stravinsky score down on your audio track in Final Cut Pro, and you can begin to assemble imagery um, above it, uh, re reframing, recomposing the, the, what I call the stage, which is essentially the screen, the rectangle of the screen. My production moves through four different, I call it a dance in four lives. And it begins, this section is called Day Tripper. The next section is called um, Uncommon Night, where I dance under a full moon, image of a full moon. The third section is called Priest's Dance, where I'm in a priest's getup. And then the fourth section I filmed at a, an abandoned mental institution in northern Michigan, and I called it Bedlam. So. And back to a, a montage of all three. Again, radically different interpretations to the same score. Everyone divinely inspired by that radical and revolutionary piece of music, all starting with the Agulip. Now, Nancy, remind me, do I finish at 2.15? Okay, I think I'm going to skip climbing San Victoire and leave some time for questions, all right? So oh, should I keep going? All right, all right, just a little bit of this. Um, here you have, again, here I've been at the university 24 years, and I have my own little editing studio in the Life Sciences building. I have the video technology. I'm teaching screen dance to my students in team teaching with a, a colleague from Screen Arts and Culture. We got a grant eight years ago from the Center for um, Research in Learning and Teaching to evolve a syllabus to team teach an interdisciplinary course. 
and we've been running the course for eight years, I figured I'd better learn Final Cut Pro if I'm going to demand that my students know it. And this is the latest. Again, filming myself against a green screen. Uh, this first intro section uh, was made in an apartment in Paris in September of 07, where all I had with me were bootlegged images off Google and whatever I could film on the little apartment on a little stepladder. I was going to be traveling to Aix-en-Provence three weeks later to actually climb the mountain. But before I did that, I made a study uh, calling it Climbing Saint-Victoire, doing the best that I could with the technology available. And this is a Satie piano. I couldn't use the, um, the images, images of the Cezanne paintings that I have essentially bought from various museums and clearinghouses for this section because it's illegal for me to manipulate the images according to these contracts. So this is, this is a kind of public domain footage that I got off. with this production is that it was originally intended to be a live performance, but then um, my, I had to fold my studio and company because of lack of funding in the Michigan economic climate, and I had to take the whole thing into a, uh, into a made-for-TV version. And I'm very, actually very glad that it happened that way. So this becomes more educational as well. So why am I obsessed with climbing a mountain What's a dancer doing making videos about a painter for the TV screen? As a choreographer, I'm used to working with live dancers on flat surfaces for the concert stage, where moving pictures I compose are contained within the proscenium frame. But more often than not, my inspiration comes from writers, visual artists, or composers. My lifelong fascination with painting will draw me into worlds that take me far beyond the confines of a dance studio. And with video editing technology, the world becomes my stage. With camera and a new set of editing tools, I can travel to landscapes beyond my wildest dreams. In the program that follows, the world of painting becomes my landscape. And I imagine myself stepping bodily into the life and mind of my favorite painter, Paul Cezanne. Why? Again, um, moving into part one, I, I kind of patched together various sections from the 55-minute work. Um, and I've, I've inserted just for you, this isn't in the production, images that, that I've drawn from for the different sections. Here I'm kind of thinking as the artist might be writing a letter to someone about the principles of his work, uh, Cezanne, and he's often been misquoted, and this has often been taken 
kind of exaggerated out of context, but his mention of the basic building blocks of nature and pictorial space as being founded on these three geometric solids, the cylinder, the cube, and the sphere. And actually, these three objects appear in the Sati work Thursday evening as well. Here I was trying to create kind of Cezanne uh, stepping into his own mind. Here imagining his muses as they relate to the objects of his still lives. This is a score by Elliot Carter, who just turned 100 years old. For four broadcasts on Michigan television, um, the use of this score costs me $2,000 royalty. So you have to have funding sources to, do, to be interdisciplinary. Let's see, one of these dancers is a graduate of U of M. And then later in the section, I borrow from the university talent as well. Uh, in the next section, I riff off the series of male bathers, and here I just inserted some of those down below. And um, it was interesting because at first I wanted to lose this scene here. And so I was playing with different colored, color effects. And as I began to saturate the image with more blue, I realized that that's what I wanted. I wanted this kind of dream effect so that you see the Cezanne downstage in a kind of a daydream, imagining these male figures moving through this kind of no space of blue. Occasionally I'll use um, superimpositions to multiply the bodies, and then they kind of get swallowed back into themselves. you one more little excerpt. Uh, it's from a painting called The Abduction, and I created a, a duet um, based on the painting you see in the lower left. Later in, the, in part two, I call it Report from X. I, I follow a narrative that I wrote uh, essentially a hundred years later in the present, and I create a series of dances with my company in contemporary clothing inspired by nine paintings of Mont Saint-Victoire. I will leave a copy of this with Nancy and uh, she can show it to you illegally. Don't, don't tell anyone. Um, I, 
we've run out of time, and I, I hope that, I hope, let me just conclude here that, you know, American dance in the mid-20th century experienced its own late belle époque. Less than 20 years after Diaghilev's last team creations in 1929, it marked the hinge or turning point towards a legacy of collaborative productions whose locus was the dance company and whose centripetal force was the choreographer, Bausch, Taylor, Graham, many others. To be fair, these fiercely independent choreographers shared the Diaghilev role with their executive directors, boards, staff, as well as with their private benefactors, the National Endowment for the Arts and State Arts Councils, Hollywood, TV, etc., and last but not least, the university. A complex system of support, control, and supply and demand has emerged in my lifetime, including the emergence of a politics of power, the aesthetic power of critics, scholars, faculty, search and tenure committees, and press and media. And this practice, this legacy, this tradition of interdisciplinary innovation and risk-taking has become institutionalized within American public universities. My dance students commission student composers for new scores, video artists for backdrops, or their peers in art and architecture to design and build their sets. They put their screen dances on YouTube. I can't begin to imagine what another century will bring, but chances are this spirit of collaboration among artists will still converge in and emanate from the dancing body, the ultimate interdisciplinary system. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for your marvelous